Welcome to CityGraceNY.com. Thank you for listening to this message recorded live at City Grace Church. Good morning, everybody. My name is Evan. I'll be reading the passage. This is Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings. You who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, uh, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. This is the word of the Lord. Would you uh, join me in prayer? Holy Spirit, would you pour out upon us wisdom and understanding? that being taught by you in Holy Scripture, our hearts and our minds may be open to receive all that leads to life and to holiness. We pray all this in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. As many of you know, we are working our way through the Apostles' Creed, and we are kind of breaking down the different phrases of the Apostles' Creed because the Apostles' Creed is really the earliest summary written by the early church describing what the gospel is all about. So we have already kind of broken down what it means to to believe in God, particularly the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Pastor Ben talked about believing in Jesus Christ, his his only son, our Lord, and what that means for our, our own life. So today we are going to continue working our way through the Apostles' Creed, saying that Jesus, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. So this phrase was highly regarded as important by the early church. So we want to take these words quite seriously. And as Evan just read earlier, we read about this story in Luke chapter 1. And today we want to primarily focus our attention on the Holy Spirit. Because it was by the Holy Spirit that Jesus himself was conceived. So that was why we had that slightly awkward question in the mutual greeting talking about whether or not you knew anything about your own birth story, because even though it's not Christmas right now, we are talking about the birth story of Jesus himself because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. So foundational to Christian belief is this idea that God is three in one. There's only one God, but three persons. Father, Father Almighty, which is we've already talked about a couple weeks ago, Jesus the Son, and then now the Holy Spirit. So all three 
of the, of the same essence, of the same, uh, what you might call, matter, essentially all the same, but yet also distinctly three. So we won't talk and try to break down exactly what the Trinity means, but today it's just more specifically the meaning and the power of the Holy Spirit himself, because that is essential to the Trinity and the Trinity's understanding of what the gospel is for our lives this morning. So the birth story for Jesus here in Luke, it does raise quite a few eyebrows, whether you've been in church for a long time or you've not been a Christian at all. Luke chapter 1, the story which Evan just read, if it hasn't raised your eyebrows, it should. It should. Because if you just read this story and take it at face value, one of your immediate reactions is like, is this for real? Like, did this actually happen or is this just a fairy tale? Because when we look at this story, we see some very unusual circumstances. So verse 26 verse 26 and 27 say, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. How will this be? Mary asked the angel later on, since I am a virgin. So central to this idea of Jesus's birth story is that he was born of a virgin Mary. So, in talking about your own birth stories, or birth stories in general, we obviously know that conception normally happens through sexual relations. And yet, for some reason, Luke is making it quite clear that Jesus was born not of normal circumstances, i.e. sexual relations, but conceived not through technology, not through any special medical device, but conceived by the Holy Spirit. Now, Luke, to begin with, is a very serious historian. And he makes that very clear in Luke chapter 1, that he's a very serious historian, very interested in recording the historical and facts of what he writes down in the progression of the gospel. And he's very clear in making sure that everyone understands that Mary is a virgin and has never had sexual relations, and yet, at the same time, she is going to be the one that will give birth to Jesus. How? The Holy Spirit. So we tend to think that when we read these stories in the Bible, that the people in the Bible are very primitive people who don't understand things like science and technology, and they just simply don't understand how the world really works. So us now as as modern, intellectual, educated people, we really understand how things work. But for the people back then, they had these uh, weird ways of understanding the world. They didn't quite understand things like X chromosomes and Y chromosomes, and they don't understand that uh, today, There's technology like in vitro fertilization and and all these different things. So we tend to look down on these people in these stories in the Bible and say that they probably just misunderstood what exactly was going on at the time. In fact, even in Bible times in the ancient Near East, it was 
very widely understood that conception happens when a man and a woman have sexual relations. It doesn't take science to figure that out. People understood this for centuries upon centuries, that this was out of the ordinary. This was in, in what you might call, it, it was a miracle. A miracle for a woman to give birth never having sexual relations. This was extraordinary. It was supernatural. And it wasn't just a misunderstanding on the early church's part. So the question is, how is this possible? How is this possible that Jesus Christ was born of a Virgin Mary? And apparently it's so important that Luke records it, and it was an integral part of the Apostles' Creed. So how is this supernatural act going to happen? Luke chapter 1, verse 35. The angel Gabriel is talking to Mary, and the angel answers, because Mary, as you can imagine, is quite bewildered and confused. But the angel answers, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. So the angel Gabriel, who is informing Mary about what is going to happen to her, answers this question. How is this supernatural, extraordinary event going to happen? And the angel's answer is, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. That's the answer. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon Mary. And we see time and time again throughout the Bible, we see these seemingly impossible situations. Promises that, that God makes, and you look at the human circumstances, and you think to yourself, how is this ever going to happen? How is it possible that God is going to do this? And time and time again, we hear again, again, again and again and again, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And we see that the Bible is full of these stories of supernatural events, extraordinary events, events that today we might call miracles. Now the question is, does God work in the same way that he worked back then today? In the same way that the Holy Spirit supernaturally conceived Jesus Christ, as well as miracle after miracle after miracle in the Bible, the question is, does he still work that way today? Now, before we try to answer that question, we have to realize that all of us, whether we're Christian or not a Christian, we have what you might call a, a worldview, a way in which we simply see the world, uh, a lens that we look through that basically helps us understand what the world is about, the meaning of the world, our own place in the world. We all have these lens, lenses that we don't necessarily talk about or necessarily realize we have, yet we all have this. We all have this, this default way of understanding this world, this world that we live in. So for most of us who have grown up in, in the Western world or perhaps in a part of the world that has been heavily influenced by, by Western values and philosophy and thinking, it's, 
it's widely regarded that we have grown up with what you might call uh, a secular worldview or a, a naturalistic worldview. That is to say that basically the lens that we look at the world in basically tells us that the world that we live in today has come about through natural means and that what we see with our eyes and, and touch with our hands is basically all there is and all there ever will be. It's what's natural. It's what we see with and experience with our senses. So, in a way, you might say that the worldview that most of us operate with and the worldview that, that most of our world operates with assumes that supernatural events and extraordinary events, they can simply not happen. It's impossible. Because when we, when we look at worldviews, all worldviews, they have, they have assumptions. They have what you might call common sense. And so for, for most people influenced by, by Western values and philosophy and thinking, common sense is that there are laws of nature and the laws of nature are established and the laws of nature are constant. And once those laws of nature have been established, there is no changing these laws of nature. There is nothing that can insert themselves into these constant static laws of nature. That is the basic default understanding that many of us have. But you have to realize that these worldviews, although many of us have inherited this, this Western, secular, naturalistic worldview, that not everyone shares these same assumptions. So for example, Native Americans have historically believed that the, the physical universe, right, that this, this universe that we can touch and see and hear and feel is actually secondary to what they would call a world of dreams. That in Native American culture and understanding, it is that world, this dream world, that is actually more real than this. It's a different worldview. They don't assume the same things that we would assume. Or for example, a Hindu. A Hindu may argue that this universe is actually, it's not real. It's just simply a, a dream, a dream in the mind of God. And so although we may experience this life as, as being real, ultimately, it's actually not real at all. So all of these different possible worldviews, we have to understand you may argue that your worldview may be correct, but there are many other people across the U.S. as well as across the world that would disagree with many assumptions that your worldview makes, particularly our secular and naturalistic worldview. Alan Lightman is um, an MIT novelist and, and physicist, and he talks about this Western secular worldview. And he wrote an article in, in Salon magazine and he describes what he calls the central doctrine of science. So this Western world that, that most of us live and, and breathe highly esteems science. Science as being almost a, the ultimate arbiter of, of what is true and, and what's possible. And so he describes this central doctrine of science and he describes it as this that science and God are compatible as long as 
God is content to stand on the sidelines once the universe has begun. In other words, he's, he's saying that it's a requirement for science that the laws of the universe be complete and, and closed and impenetrable to kind of any outside forces. So he's saying that this really is the central doctrine for scientists. That scientists work with this assumption that there, these, there are these natural laws that have been established, that are constant, that are static, that will never change and can never be changed. But what is that? It's, it's doctrine. It's, it's what you might call an assumption. John Lennox, he's a, a professor of mathematics at the University of Oxford, and he says this, to force a naturalistic paradigm on everything has the effect of closing down science rather than opening it up. Which is to say that he's, that he's contending that scientists, physicists, biologists, scientists, mathematicians have this central doctrine of science that excludes any possibility of the supernatural, extraordinary, miraculous. But counterintuitively, he's saying, to, to force this naturalistic paradigm on this world actually closes down science instead of opening it up. So all of these worldviews, they, they have assumptions. And the question is, for us this morning, what assumptions do we bring when we come to the Bible? What, what preconceived ideas have we already thought about and already determined conclusions that we've already made before we actually come to the Bible itself? Because we all have these assumptions. Because we all have a worldview. We all have a lens in which we interpret our life, and we have a lens in which we interpret the Bible. So if you're a Christian, perhaps the assumption is, that whatever you read in the Bible is automatically true. What is that? It's an assumption. If you're not a Christian, perhaps you, you read the Bible, and the assumption is that whatever the Bible says is just a made-up fairy tale. But what, what is that? It's an assumption. So the question is, is, is there any biblical evidence to make a claim that the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit as we read in the Bible, is there any evidence to support the idea that the work and the gifts of the Holy Spirit only happen in the Bible and don't happen now? Interestingly, this question was raised um, when I was in seminary. So I went to Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and I remember very distinctly this question being raised because in seminary you have many people who are training to be pastors and ministers, priests, um, some people going into the marketplace, some people becoming educators. And um, the, the seminary that I went to was um, an interdenominational seminary. So at the seminary you have people like uh, Baptists getting trained, people like Presbyterians getting trained, Anglicans, Methodists. Pentecostals, Charismatics, all coming to the same seminary, all coming from various different theological convictions, 
various different um, backgrounds and, and cultures, all coming together to, to study together. And this was in a, in a systematic theology class, and the professor asked this question in regard to the Holy Spirit and whether or not the gifts of the Holy Spirit are still in full effect today. Because this is a question that has been debated for, for quite some time, and a question that not everyone has the same perspective on. So I was in systematic theology class. The class is about maybe 50, 60 people. The professor raised the question, how many of you believe that the gifts and the work of the Holy Spirit continue in full effect today? And I slowly raised my hand, looking around to see who else was going to raise their hand. And lo and behold, everyone raised their hand. And then he asked, just to clarify, uh, is there anyone who believes that the gifts and the work of the Holy Spirit is no longer in full effect today? And we, everyone's looking around, and nobody's raising their hand. So at this seminary, with various theological backgrounds being represented, people of various ages... No one believed that the Holy Spirit's gifts and work were in full effect today. Everyone was on the same page. So, if Jesus, right, as we read in the Bible, healed the sick, cast out demons, in the power of the Holy Spirit, can we do the same thing today? But we read something very interesting in the Gospel of Mark, which is Jesus, in his life, if you just read the biblical accounts at face value, he's healing the sick, he's turning water into wine, he's casting out demons. In Mark chapter 6, we read something interesting, because Jesus is omnipotent. He's, he's all-powerful. He can do all things, and he's working in the power of the Spirit. But, but read, what it, read what happens. When he goes to his hometown in Nazareth, it says that Jesus could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. So Jesus, operating in the power of the Holy Spirit, being fully God and fully man, you would think he could do whatever he wanted. And in a sense, he can. But when he goes to his hometown in Nazareth, he can't do what he did before. And the question is why? He couldn't do it, and he was marveling at their unbelief. So you would think, again, that Jesus operating in the gifts of the Holy Spirit would be able to heal, sick, heal the sick on demand, cast out demons on demand, perform miracle on demand. But when he goes to his hometown in Nazareth, he can't do it. He lays his hands on a few sick people and 
He does heal them, but the full power is not there. Why? The people don't believe it. It's a lack of faith. So the question for us this morning is, do we see either few or no miracles and supernatural work of the Holy Spirit because, not because God doesn't do it, but because we don't believe it. Now, the word, the word miracle doesn't occur in the New Testament. The Greek word um, semios does, which means sign. So whenever there's a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in the Bible, the Bible calls it a sign. It doesn't call it a miracle. The Bible calls it a sign. And miracles are signs, and like all signs, they're, they're not about themselves. Right? Because a sign points to something else. So when we read the biblical accounts at face value, we see the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. We see Jesus doing all these miraculous things, and the Bible calls them signs. Because signs always point to something else. And what do they point to? They point to a supernatural God. A supernatural God, not a, not a natural God, not a God who does things the way that human beings do things, but a God who supernaturally speaks the world into existence, a God who is able to part the Red Sea, a God who is able to turn water into wine, a God who is able to feed the multitudes with seemingly nothing, a God who is able to rain down manna to supply the needs of his people, miraculously, supernaturally, and what are they all? They're signs. They're trying to get the people to look to somewhere else. Not to themselves, not to what they can do, not to their own might, not to their own power, but to the Holy Spirit, to God himself. So, if we're saying, right, that that God really is Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, can we not believe that he would be able to do almost anything like that? We just went over, God is Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. If he could create heaven and earth by speaking the world into existence, by creating something out of nothing, why could he not do what he did in the Bible but do it today? The point is that the Bible is it's full of examples. Read the Bible at, at face value without any assumptions that we bring to it, and we see a supernatural God trying to point to himself. That's what the Bible's about. But for some reason, sometimes some of us bring these assumptions to the Bible. And we say, okay, God did X, Y, and Z in the Bible. And so if we're to follow him today, all we got to do is read our Bible and show up to church on Sundays. There's, there's a disconnect. There's in, uh, what you might call an incongruence. It doesn't fit together. Why would God be a God 
who does miracle after miracle, supernatural work after supernatural work, sign after sign, miracle after miracle, and then, bam, the Bible's closed. Now what do we do? Show up at church. Really? Here's what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. He's a a Reformed, educated scholar, also a doctor. He writes this in The Sovereign Spirit. He says, It is perfectly clear in the New Testament times, the gospel was authenticated in this way by signs, wonders, and miracles of various characters and descriptions. And he goes on to say, Was it only meant to be true of the early church? The scriptures never anywhere say that these things were only temporary. Never. There is no such statement anywhere. And Lloyd-Jones is widely regarded as a pretty conservative scholar. And in looking at the Bible, he says, the people who make the case that the gifts and the work of the Holy Spirit ended with the early church and is not in full effect today, says it's just not scriptural. The Bible just does not support that idea. We may bring that assumption, that idea to the table, but that's not what the Bible brings to us. In a moment, I'm going to call up our friend Kara, who's going to share some very extraordinary testimonies from her life and from a ministry that she's been a part of. But As we look to the future of our church, we're going to mention this in our town hall meeting later today, that we want to be a church that is operating in the power and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. That that is where the power is going to come from. And what does the the angel say to Mary? What does the angel say to Mary when when Mary is incredulous and like, skeptical and and doubting. Like, how is God going to bring about this supernatural birth? And what does the angel say? The angel says, for nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing. Nothing will be impossible with God. So the question for us is, what is possible when we believe what God is telling us to believe? What's possible? What is possible? Let me pray for us. Father God, we acknowledge that we have often brought assumptions and preconceived notions and limited your work in our own lives and in our churches. And God, we just wanted to lay our our lives before you and say, we're hungry for more. We need more. We want to see more. We want to experience more of your spirit's fullness and love and comfort and supernatural work. God, we repent of the times that we have disbelieved what you say to us. That in the same way that Jesus went to Nazareth and his work was limited by the people's unbelief, God, God, we acknowledge that we have limited your work. We have put you in a box. So, Father, by your Holy Spirit, would you you break open that box in our lives, in our church, in this city? God, this city needs more of you. 
God, would you do that for the sake of your name? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.